I just teach the Bible in the way that I uh, need to hear it. So uh, that's kind of what I do around here. And so I may not have had a chance to meet you yet, especially if you are uh, visiting with us online. If I haven't got a chance to meet you, I'd love to be able to do that at some point whenever uh, that's comfortable for you. My family's at home viewing from home today. So hi, Johanna, how are you doing? Great to see you, Johanna, in Salem, my daughters. I've got boys, but they don't care if I call them out. So... Uh, if you're visiting with us in person and I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, would love to, to meet you. Uh, you may be kind of a, a round North Waker, kind of been around here for a, while, for a while and think, man, I haven't seen Noah for a while. And there's a good reason for that. Uh, I've been on sabbatical for about three months. Uh, uh, June, July, and August, I was uh, granted a sabbatical for, uh, for the summer. Over the summer, I was not planning on doing a sabbatical. Uh, I was uh, having an extended day of prayer, and the Lord said, you're going to take a sabbatical. And I said, what? And he said, no, really, you're going to take a sabbatical. And so I talked with Larry, and Larry talked with the elders, and they said, yeah, we'd love to grant you a sabbatical. And so uh, here at North Wake, that's one thing we try to gift to our leaders. About every seven years, uh, we give them a handful of months to, to reconnect with the Lord and to rest and reconnect with their families and to just... Uh, kind of disconnect so they can reconnect and, 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 and pursue a appropriate pace of life. And so that's what I was able to do uh, for the last three months. I've actually been back for about three weeks. And, uh, you know, I'd, I've said to people, I don't know if I did it right, uh, but it's working. Um, you know, the first month it really felt like that I was like thawing out. Uh, the, my soul was thawing out. And then the, the second month it was kind of like my soul was waking up. And then the third month, it really felt like my soul like came back to life and that God gave me a greater capacity for loving him and for loving other people. And so uh, I'm really, really thankful for uh, being able to do a sabbatical. Uh, it was a little weird uh, with coronavirus. There's, you know, some people travel on their sabbaticals and do fun stuff. I mostly just hung out with Jesus and uh, spent time with my family, which was a, a huge gift to me. Uh, Steph and I did a vacation together. Um, I spent a week alone with Jesus. And if you know me, uh, you know that's hard for me. I like people. I like to talk. And um, so that was work. It was, but it was good. Jesus showed up and, and really ministered to me. And so a um, couple of books I would suggest, uh, a couple of the books that I read on my sabbatical. One is a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. Uh, there's actually a shortened version that you can read really quick, but that's a horrible idea. So don't get that one because uh, it's a book about slowing down. So why would you read the shortened version to hurry up? Not a good idea. Um, fantastic book. He really understands our plague as Americans uh, with, with uh, hurry sickness. So great book. Uh, John Mark Comer, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Um, if you read it in its entirety, I'll take you out to lunch. How about that? So great book, really, really good. Uh, second book is um, The Common Rule by Justin Early. Really a, a great book on how do you pursue life on purpose and set a pace of life that's healthy for you and those around you. Uh, so two really great books. Um, I like word pictures. And so uh, the way that I would kind of sum up uh, my sabbatical, what I learned on my sabbatical is that uh, pursuing Christ is like sailing. Uh, my job is to put the sailboat in the water to take up the anchor, to put out the sail, and to wait for the wind to blow. I can do a lot of things in the pursuit of intimacy with Christ, but I cannot make the wind blow. Uh, some days uh, you're sitting in the boat and, you know, the, the sail is just ruffling a little bit. And there's other days that it's all you can stand and the wind is just blowing you all around in terms of the nearness of Christ. But, but that doesn't depend on me. 
Uh, my job is to faithfully daily get in the boat, set sail, cut anchor, and to wait on the Lord. And so that's how we keep pace with Christ, is that we wait on him to move. Uh, sometimes he doesn't move as quickly as we'd like to, and sometimes he says, just sit, wait, watch and see what I will do. So uh, thank you for being a church that loves its leaders enough to let them rest and pursue Jesus through things like sabbaticals. Uh, it truly is a gift of life and longevity for us. Uh, you're investing in your own health when you do that. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, we've been in the book of Mark, and we're going to be back there again today. Um, I'll be responsible for the end of chapter 12. And uh, Jesus is having a long day in uh, chapter 12 uh, of the book of Mark. It's, it's the Tuesday before uh, he will be crucified on Friday. Um, you know, Tuesday in the book of Mark starts in chapter 11 uh, of the book of Mark and goes all the way through chapter 13. So it's a long day in the book of Mark. And so, uh, you know, Jesus on uh, day Tuesday, starting in Mark 11, he enters into Jerusalem. You know, he passes by the fig tree that they cursed. Uh, they go into Jerusalem. His authority is challenged by the scribes and the elders. Uh, Jesus then poses that question about John the Baptist. Uh, there's a parable that he tells about some tenants and a vineyard. Uh, all the while, the scribes and the elders, they're seeking a way to arrest Jesus. So they send the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus with, with questions that are designed to, to trap him uh, because they want to take him into custody. They want to arrest him. Uh, so those guys strike out and then the Sadducees come. Uh, they take their best shot at trapping Jesus with a silly conundrum about a woman uh, with seven dead husbands. That doesn't turn out so well. And uh, while they're disputing all of this, another scribe comes up and says to Jesus, well, what is the greatest commandment? He reminds, them, reminds him of what the Bible says, that it's to love God and to love neighbor. And so after all of this, at the end of that section, it says that no one dared to ask him any more questions. So it's been a long day for Jesus, but, but he doesn't clock out. He's got a couple of things he still needs to address. Uh, today, he's going to speak directly to the scribes, and then he's going to highlight this beautiful picture of what it looks like to sacrificially live before the face of God. So we're going to need God uh, to help us understand his word by the Spirit. So let's pray and ask him to help us do that. Would you pray with me? Father, may we see your son clearly. May we trust your word more, and may we be willing to offer all to you because you are worthy. Only by your grace can we do that. And so we request it of you, Lord, and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, we're going to be in Mark 12, starting in verse 35. And if you look there, you'll see this. It says, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So here Jesus turns from, from defense to offense, having silenced the religious leaders uh, to that point, uh, he says, uh, you know, no one dares to even uh, question him anymore. So he, he finishes with their questions and then starts to question them. He has questions of his own. And the question focuses on the misunderstanding that the scribes have concerning who the Messiah is. Who is the Christ really? Who is he going to be? So we see in verse 35 when Jesus says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And so I'm going to highlight a couple of possible, possible understanding or misunderstandings that they had and then kind of show how Jesus refutes those. So I'm going to highlight two misunderstandings and then show how Jesus kind of puts those down. So one possibility that he's referring to is the, the possible misunderstanding that, may have, that they may have had, the scribes, the notion that uh, one of King David's actual sons, possibly Solomon, 
is or was the Messiah. Another option is that one of King David's biological descendants down the line would be the promised Messiah. So either way, they have a false belief that David's actual son was the Messiah, or they have a flattened belief that the Messiah would simply be a human descendant of David rather than what Isaiah 9 says. And Isaiah 9 says like this in verses 6 and 7. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the vision of the Messiah was much grander than he would just be a descendant of David. He will be mighty God. And that's exactly what he's up against here. Is not just simply a descendant of David, not just coming from David, but something greater than David. And so it is this, uh, you know, it's this fact that makes them miss the Messiah that the Messiah is there in their midst, the son of God, the king of Israel, the descendant of David. He's come and he's brought his kingdom with, with him. And it's their false and flattened belief that has caused them to miss the Messiah. It, it will cause them to kill the Christ. But rather than simply saying, take my word for it, uh, Jesus here appeals once again to the scriptures. He wants to prove his point by looking to Psalm 110. And he's essentially saying, let's ask King David who the Messiah is. Let's see what David says. And if you look at Psalm 110, it reads like David is quoting a conversation between two characters. And it's a bit confusing at first read, but I hope I can clear up any confusion as we go along. So I'll I'll try and do that. So uh, if you look at uh, Mark 12, 36 to 37, this is where the quote from Psalm 110, uh, Jesus is, is quoting here. He says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Jesus asks. And the great throng heard him gladly. So a close look at the passage, uh, we actually see four characters there. So we see David, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, and my Lord. And so I want to just kind of give us some ideas of who those different people are. Clear that up a little bit. So, so David is the human author of Psalm 110. The Holy Spirit is the divine author of Psalm 110. The Lord we should understand to be the God who created all things, the God of Abraham, the God who brought Israel out of Egypt. And that fourth character is a bit more mysterious. But if we look at Psalm 110 itself, we get a better glimpse. And we, so we see this. Uh, in, uh, starting in verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so if you remember our study in the book of Hebrews, this Melchizedek, this priestly king is a reference back to the book of Genesis, but it also looks forward to the person of Christ. So we should understand that fourth person called my Lord is actually Jesus the Messiah. 
And whose Lord or master is he? He is David's master or Lord. That's why Jesus, or that's why David calls him my Lord. So a simple way of thinking about this is to say that King David, as he is empowered by the Holy Spirit, recounts a conversation between the Lord, let's call him God the Father, and one David calls my Lord or master, let's call him God the Son. And what does Lord say to Lord? What does Father say to Son? This is what he says, essentially. Wait patiently right here beside me on this throne we share, and I will put your enemies in their place. Your day is coming, son, is basically what's happening here. So it becomes very clear why Jesus quotes this psalm. The Messiah is not less than David because David calls him Lord or Master. And furthermore, Psalm 110 reveals that Christ is a priest forever who sits at God's right hand, whose enemies will become foot furniture. Jesus is subtly saying this, I am the Christ and I would strongly advise against aligning yourself with my enemies. Jesus is facing a lot of uh, his enemies these days. And he has a warning for them. He wants to clarify who he is and what they're getting themselves into, what they're up against. And so he's teaching in the temple. He's clarifying what it is that's being said in Psalm 110. He's clarifying who he is. And then he kind of gets to the application portion of his teaching. And we see in uh, Mark 12, verses 38 to 40, he says this. And he said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So having called into question the scribes' view of the Christ, now he calls into question their character. And he does so by highlighting five ways they have positioned themselves as God's enemies rather than God's servants. And here's the five ways. They want to be perceived. They want to be recognized. They want to be revered. They want to be compensated. And they want to be heard. So they want to be perceived. They want people to look upon them and their status. They want to be perceived as something. So they dress to impress. They want to be recognized. They want others to publicly recognize their position in society and culture. They want to be revered. They want people to look up to them so that they can sit in places to be seen. They want to be looked at. They want to be seen. They want to be compensated. So they pad their lifestyles through taking advantage of the vulnerable. They want to be heard. They pray so others can hear them rather than talking to God, their Father. Brothers and sisters, if I'm honest with you, each of these sirens has called to me over the years as I've led in different capacities. And I've been tempted by all of these foolish desires. Any person who seeks to lead has been tempted by these things. And every person in this room is subject to these things, is tempted by these things because we all lead at some level whether you're an older brother or sister, a friend, whether you run a business, you lead a home, you're a mother or a father, we all are tempted with these things. 
I hope and pray that none of these ever overtake me. And the only way that I know how to do that, how to make sure that these things don't define me and become who I am, is to live face-to-face with Jesus. And here's what I mean. If any voice becomes louder than Jesus' voice, I will fall to these vices. If I lead for any other reason than for the pleasure of Christ, I am in danger. And the same thing is true about you. So here are five ways to combat these vices. One, let people know who you really are, not who you wish they thought you were. Be real with people. Don't project something forward that people will think something about you. Be who you are with all your strengths and all your weaknesses. Two, avoid letting your titles and positions define you or precede you. I'm actually glad that my title gets all junked up all the time. It's because it's good for me, right? Because nobody knows what I do, right? So that's good. Nobody, I can't let that be what I'm defined by. Three, don't let others look up to you. Help them set their eyes on Christ. Four, whatever you do, never do it for the money especially ministry. If you are training for ministry, uh, these things apply so heavily to you. Uh, Be warned, but never do it for the money. Whatever it is that you do, but especially ministry, never do it for the money. Five, live with your face in God's face rather than anyone else's. Live face to face with God. Let his voice bring you pleasure. Let his voice wake you up in the morning. Not the voice of anyone else asking you to do anything else. Live for his pleasure, live for his voice. One thing that I'm learning is a a principle called scripture before phone. I would suggest it. Let the voice of Jesus be the one you wake up to rather than an email or Instagram or whatever version you take in in the morning, the news. Let his voice be first in your life. Live with your face in his face. I can say with all confidence that these principles mark our leaders, in particular our elders. Uh, Our elders are not perfect. I know them all personally. I spend time with them. I hang out with them. They're all in process. But, But I observe these qualities consistently, and I have for 20 years. An enduring desire not to be made much of. And I hope that that always marks this church. And I want to encourage you, wherever it is that you go from here, whatever you do next, make sure that when you put yourself under someone else's leadership, that these things mark them and that things that Jesus is warning against, that those things are not present. Beware of leaders who need to be served rather than truly desiring to serve. May sacrificial service always be the lifeblood of this church. That's my prayer. So having said that, Jesus sits down. Let's look and see what he does when he sits down in Mark chapter 12, 41 to 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put more than all the others who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, 
all she had to live on. So as I read this passage, something bothers me about it. What bothers you about this passage? What just doesn't seem right? Jesus has just said, beware of the scribes and the Pharisees, or beware of the scribes, because they devour widows. And then what do we see? A widow taking the only money she has and putting it in the offering that presumably is going to fund an institution that Jesus calls a den of robbers, right? Something doesn't feel right about that. And so, so part of me has always wondered, why doesn't Jesus tackle this lady and be like, no, don't put the money in there. It's all you have. Why doesn't he do that? How can he applaud this, this, this madness at some level? I can only make sense of it because of what has come before. His father has asked him to sit as his enemies are brought to nothing. And so he sits. He actually sits down. Don't miss the connection there. That's not by accident. So he sits and he watches. And this deep confidence that God will bring about justice allows him to see the great good in what this woman has done. So rather than interrupting her sacrifice on a dirty altar, he sees the worthy God to whom she is offering, who makes the offering clean. Brothers and sisters, she's a prototype of the offering that Jesus is about to make. Three days after this, Jesus will offer all he has, his whole life, in love for God, in love for even his disciples. He will give it all. And Jesus doesn't want his disciples to miss what this woman has done. Because he does not want them to miss what his kingdom is about. He says... Beware of the religious elite. Pay no, uh, but, 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 but pay attention to this widow. They all gave the extra. She has given all she has because God is enough for her. Jesus is presenting to his disciples and all who will listen another way to live. He's saying, I'm the master. I'm the king. And my kingdom, my way of being is different than the world and its religious leaders. It's a different kingdom. And you'll notice that Jesus sits down and he calls his disciples over to him. And the only other time this happens in the book of Mark is back in chapter 9, verses 33 to 37. It says this, And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What are you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. It's the same pattern. He sits, he calls, and he points out how they are wanting to live like the kingdom of the world and their desire to be great. And then he points to a child who has nothing to offer them and says, 
receive this one and you receive me. King Jesus and his kingdom are drastically different than all this world offers. There are no greats. There are no religious know-it-alls. Just children who can offer nothing and widows who offer everything. That's what makes up God's kingdom. So how about you? Are you pursuing greatness? Or are you pursuing servitude to the great master? To King Jesus? What kingdom are you investing in? What kingdom are you building? What way are you following? Is it Jesus' way? Or is it a way parading itself as Jesus' way? Are you more like the scribes or the widow? In that story, you, are, did you look more like the scribes? Do you look more like the widow? Because that's what Mark is doing. Don't miss that. That's the whole point. That's why he puts them beside each other. It's because he wants you as the reader to say, am I the scribe or am I the widow? Brothers and sisters, I'm disappointed in how much I look like the scribes rather than how much I look like the widow. I want to look like her. If you read that story and get away without any conviction, you've, you've done a massive trick on yourself. This widow is crushing her devotion and love for God to give it all. is meant to corner us, to ask us hard questions. So are you more like, this, uh, like the disciples who want to be great or a child who has nothing to offer? What do you like in that story? You like the child? Or are you like a disciple that's arguing with all the other disciples about who's going to be the greatest? We all have our versions of this. Jesus, he gave it all. He didn't hold back anything. Listen, what does Jesus have? What does he own? All of it. So when he gives, it's not two pennies. He is the very son of God that's never known the displeasure of the father and he has given his life that you would know life. He would give that? He would give up heaven to give you that? He gave it all. You see in Philippians 2, he didn't take it back up. It was actually given back to him, right? He gave it all so that you could know his father and walk with him daily. So what does it look like for you to give all you have in service to God? Not to pay him back, but because if no, service is, no servant is greater than his master, then what will be expected of us? So here's the part of the service where it'd be very easy for me to say, Daniel, come sing a song. And everybody's happy. And we walk out the door and we go get lunch and then you forget everything. God's word is not intended to do that to us. It is intended to split us down the middle. And so my hope is that you will genuinely ask the spirit, Lord, how do I respond to this? How do I be what you want me to be? How do I live the way you want me to live? How do I live your way rather than my way? And so I, I hope 
that as we reflect on this next song, that it's not just a song, it's not just a filler, that, that you will make it a time to pray and genuinely lay yourself before God and say, do what you want to with me. If you will do that, he will honor that prayer. Lord, have mercy. He always honors that prayer. And so might we go asking for mercy? Might we ask him to change us? And I believe that he will. So my question for you is this. Will you do that? Will you simply just say, Lord, take me, do whatever you want to with me. I don't know what it's going to be, and I'm a little bit scared, but I'm going to give you that. Because you gave it all. He loves you and he cares for you and he will take care of you. I promise. So let's respond to him uh, as we sing this song. Daniel's uh, the worship team, they're going to sing. And it really is a time for us to respond. Respond uh, through prayer. If you want to kneel, uh, feel free to do that. Uh, if you want to come forward, uh, feel free to do that. Uh, everybody will give each other space. That's, that's okay. Um, if you would like to, to, to be prayed for, um, flag one of our leaders. We'd love to come pray with you. Daniel, will you lead us?